I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 today. Thank you for singing to one another in song, songs. We, we didn't sing any psalms this morning, but in spiritual songs and in hymns. So thankful for that ministry that we can have to one another as we praise our gracious God. Last week we saw from the beginning of Romans 6 that we must never excuse sin in our lives. And I hope that was ringing through your mind this week as you face various temptations, that grace is never an excuse for sin. We saw that this was for several reasons, because baptism demonstrates new life, because crucifixion dismantles old life, and because resurrection demands new life. And we, we really saw how at the end here of, of that section, in verse 11 of Romans 6, uh, it kind of sums up much of what Paul has been saying thus far in Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 11 uh, says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God, in Christ Jesus. And those three pieces really form the crux of what Paul's been saying. We are dead to sin. It is not our master anymore. We are alive to God, raised to newness of life, he says in a previous verse. And this is all possible as the believer is unified with Christ and through the unification that comes through Christ. So that's what we saw last week. And this week we will pick up right there. We'll pick up there. Uh, Paul picks up his thought in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So that therefore shows that there's a connection to last week. So in light of the fact that we are dead to sin, alive to God, in Christ Jesus, our passage today. Let's read verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray as we begin. Father, I thank you for the gospel that we've already been able to sing this morning for the scriptures that we've already heard, that have already ministered to our souls. And we echo that scripture reading from Ephesians 3, that you would help us to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ for us, and your love for us in Christ. May we respond now to the mightiness of your name, your steadfast love, by humbly listening to what you have spoken. And particularly as this passage has so many exhortations for us, may we submit to them and respond with willful obedience, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard. May we focus well, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sin, for the Christian, is a deposed ruler. Once it reigned in our lives... But now it's been cast from the city and has no claim on the Christian. And yet, despite new life in Christ, we still struggle with sin, don't we? We can all attest to this. We all, every single day, have a battle at sin as sin seeks to invade our lives yet again. 
It seeks to subjugate us to his desires. And the three verses that we're going to look at today, we're going to see uh, that Paul instructs us to fight against sin's reign. He says that right in verse 12, right? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we keep sin at bay when it's clamoring against the walls? Well, from these verses, I'd like us to see three different ways that we can fight sin in our life this week. Very, hopefully very practical. Last week was some super important foundational truths about our identity in Christ. And as we said with the therefore, that lays the foundation for how should we live. Well, let's consider these three ways this morning. First of all, if we're to succeed in our battle against sin, we must know our enemy. Know your enemy. This is something that's been in military strategy since uh, for, for hundreds of, of years at this point. Know your enemy. Know yourself. This uh, advice from the, the Chinese general Sun Tzu um, over a millennia ago. Know your enemy. And verse 12 kind of gets at this idea. It's, it's primarily a command to resist sin, right? Let not sin reign in your mortal body. But as we dig into it a little more, we'll learn more about our enemy, about this enemy that wants to reign in our lives. We'll see both his goal and, thankfully, his fallibility. So first, in verse 12, let's notice sin's goal. Sin wants to control you. Verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign. Yes, sin has been deposed. It's no longer the master. And yet this shows us that sin still wants to be in charge. It wants to trick you into thinking that it's still the boss. And specifically, Paul says, let not sin therefore reign where? In your mortal body. Your mortal body is the part of you that interacts with the world. It's the part of you that is capable of sinning. Since sin cannot own the genuine believer's soul, it can't condemn that to hell, it instead targets the part of us that is still available, as it were. It targets our mortal body. Our, 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 the word mortal has the idea of being able to die corruptness. And it says that the reason for this is to make you obey its passions. So, it so very simply, sin wants to reign in your body for the purpose of controlling your body, to bending you to its desires. And this may seem a little unsurprising at first glance. Okay, sin, sin wants to gain a foothold in my life. Okay, I, 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 can't, I think I know that. But so often in our lives, in the moment of temptation, we forget that sin wants to control us. It wants to, to seep into every aspect of our life without us realizing it. And Paul reminds us in very stark language that sin is going to try to reign. Even, though you're, even if you're a Christian, even if you have been freed from sin, as he's been talking about up thus far, sin still wants to reign. In that moment of temptation, we forget that. Because sin is deceptive, isn't it? It lies to us as it was from the garden. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man. Ah, oh, this seems like a good idea. This seems like it's not going to be that big of a deal. But its end, Proverbs 14 says, is the way to death. Make no mistake this morning. Though sin at times can seem harmless, its desire is to control, to enslave, to destroy. My daughter has a very cute blue stuffed hippo that she likes to play with. It's adorable, it's cuddly, all that kind of thing. But 
hippos, you might be aware, are actually very dangerous animals. They, they, it's, uh, I saw a stat that they kill over 500 people a year. So hippos in real life are not the cuddly creatures that we like to think they are sometimes. Several years ago, a man named Marius sought to keep a hippo as a pet. He named the hippo Humphrey. Humphrey the hippo. Marius was quoted as saying, they think you can only have a relationship with dogs, cats, and domestic animals, but I have a relationship with the most dangerous animal in Africa. End quote. And sadly, but perhaps predictably, Humphrey killed Marius. You see, despite intellectually knowing how dangerous the hippo was, yeah, it's the most dangerous animal in Africa, Marius chose to believe that he would be the exception to that rule. He chose to view the dangerous animal as a friend rather than as a threat, and he suffered the tragic consequence. And I wonder how many of us, despite intellectually knowing how dangerous sin is, choose to think that we'll be the exception. It won't actually hurt us. I wonder how many of us view sin as a cuddly stuffed animal to play around with rather than viewing it as an existential threat. Can sin condemn us if we're a Christian? Praise God, no. But brothers and sisters, sin is not a pet. Sin may no longer legally be our master, but it is still dangerous, and it still seeks to exert control in our lives. Grace may be the one seated on the throne, but sin is still lurking in the shadows. It still seeks to make us obey its passions, what it wants. Some of us this morning might need to take sin a little bit more seriously. It's so easy to say, well, we're under grace. And yet this passage makes it very clear, the passage that talks about being under grace, that sin still has an agenda, and it's dangerous. There's a famous quote you might have heard before. It says, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. I think that's true. Ironically and sadly, I, I googled that and was just trying to figure out who that's, um, who that's attributed to. And there's a few different people who have said that, but one of the people it's most commonly attributed to is Ravi Zacharias. Might be familiar with him, maybe not. Ravi Zacharias was a Christian apologist. He passed away a few years ago responsible for leading thousands of people to the Lord. Um, but after his death, it came out with pretty convincing evidence that for years he had a lifestyle of sexually manipulating and exploiting women. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. As we seek to know our enemy, we need to realize that sin wants to control us. Sin wants to make us obey its passions. I know that's kind of a sober note to start on here. But praise God that sin is also fallible. It can be resisted. So we need to know sin's fallibility. Well, where do we see this in verse 12? It's just the fact that Paul is giving this as a command. He says, let not sin therefore reign. You know what that implies? 
It implies that sin doesn't have to reign. He's saying, don't let this happen because with God's grace, it doesn't have to. Sin does not have to reign in your life. By giving the command to fight, Paul is implying that fighting is actually possible. Where before we were bound in slavery to sin and the best we could hope for was maybe some like behavior modification or something like that. In Christ, we are actually free to fight against that sin and not let it reign. Now, of course, we strive with the strength that He supplies. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We need the Holy Spirit to help us fight the sin. But with that in mind, Paul says, don't let sin reign. It's possible. Paul is instructing us to prevent sin's reign because he knows that for those of us in Christ, it's possible. I like the way John MacArthur puts it. It is obvious that sin can reign in our bodies, else Paul's admission would be, admonition would be pointless. But it is also obvious that sin does not have to reign there, or the warning would be equally pointless. I'm reminded of maybe an older brother with a younger sister who's kind of bossing her around a bit. And you just want to say to the younger sister, like, don't let him boss you around. You don't have to be under his authority. You're not under his authority, so you don't have to be under his control, essentially. Don't let him boss you around. You don't have to. Brothers and sisters, don't let sin boss you around. It doesn't have any authority over you. It's not your master. To hear this command from Paul is to be assured that sin does not have to reign in your life. Are you discouraged this morning because you keep on falling into the same temptation over and over again? Do you feel that that, that particular sin is just insurmountable? And just when you think you got a handle on it, you fall into it again. Victory is possible. I understand that in this life we won't perfectly attain it, but we don't have to let it reign either. We can actually make progress in our struggle against sin. We're broken people. Our sin won't disappear overnight. But we can make progress in this battle. It's actually possible as a Christian to refuse sin's claim on the throne of our lives for sin is a deposed ruler. He's not the one in charge anymore. Now maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, I don't know if I've ever experienced that kind of freedom before. Maybe sin is still your master. Do you find yourself longing for that kind of release from those passions of your mortal body, to put it in kind of Pauline language, from the things that you know you shouldn't be doing? You might be able to modify your behavior a little bit externally. You might even be able to, for an unbeliever, to gain some level of, uh, of victory over negative habits in your life. But it is only in Christ that true and lasting freedom that actually pleases the Lord is possible. So my encouragement to you is to embrace Him. If you're not sure that you've, uh, if you've been freed from sin, confess your sins to Him. Recognize that you can't free yourself on your own. Trust that His sacrifice is enough to deal with every single one of your sins and ask Him to free you from them. So how are we supposed to fight sin? Well, we have to know our enemy. We need to know its goal, but also the fact that it has weakness. It's not actually our master. 
But let's see in verse 13 now how Paul fleshes this idea out. He's going to give us a little more specificity. How, what does it look like to not let sin reign? Well, here's verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That theme should be getting familiar by now. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So how do you fight sin? In part, know your enemy. Second, offer your service. And in this verse, we see two aspects of offering your service or presenting. We see two aspects to this. First, we see who we shouldn't offer ourselves to. That's in the first half of the verse. And secondly, we see who we should offer ourselves to. Pretty straightforward idea here. So the first side of this coin is that we must not offer our bodies to sin. We see this straightforward in verse 13. Don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. That word present has the idea of yielding to. It's, it's showing up next to sin and saying, here are my members, here you go. Sometimes that word is translated as just stand. <laughs> and in, in this case, it's, it's like you're standing right next to it, but, it's, but because it's not just... It's not just like passively standing there. It's presenting. It's yielding. It's saying, I have something for you, sin. And what is that thing? It says, do not present your members, the parts of your body, the parts of us that can be used for sin or righteousness. And Paul says that these members can be used as instruments. You might think of musical instruments that can play a tune or, or tools that can be used to accomplish something, those kinds of instruments. It's interesting, this word in John chapter 18, verse 3, is translated as weapons. People are coming out to meet Jesus as, with, with weapons. And so whenever you're looking to try to understand what's the particular nuance that, that, uh, that a certain passage is referring to, the context is what helps you figure that out, right? So here we see that uh, we are not to offer our members to sin as instruments for, for unrighteousness. Well, that means that unrighteousness and sin uses them like a tool to build them, like an instrument. So those are good translations. But I like to think of it, too, in terms of weapons. Because <laughs> he says in verse 12, don't let sin reign. There's kind of a militaristic aspect of that. Verse 14, he says, sin will have no dominion over you. So you can, you can picture this warfare that's going on. And in the war of the Christian life, Paul says, you have instruments of war. You have members to do something with. There's a war going on. Your feet are like spears. Your hands are like swords. Maybe your brain is like a precise bow and arrow or something like that. But when we take us, our bodies, and we use them for unrighteousness, for sinful purposes, it's as if we've crossed enemy lines and said to the opposing general, here you go, you have my sword. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. What does this look like? Well, people use their members as instruments of unrighteousness all the time. They use their hands for, maybe we could say, big things like murder, human trafficking, robbery, a host of evils. But while injustice at the hands of evil, wicked humans is real and should be condemned and fought against, Paul's admonition is to the normal believer. You don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So how do we do that sometimes? 
Well, just, I'll just give you some examples, and you need to think bigger than this. So this is not an exhaustive list in the, in the least, but what are some ways that maybe we use the members of our bodies as instruments for unrighteousness? Well, do we use our hands to type an email that tears down a boss or a friend with half-truths? Do we metaphorically use our feet to visit websites or forms of entertainment that push us toward impurity? Do we use our eyes to view the resources of people around us and either covet their wealth and grow bitter about our lack or be judgmental toward them because of their poverty? And what about the member of our bodies that sits in here, the tongue? James 3.5 says the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The little tongue. We saw this week what a fire can do hundreds of miles away, and yet here we are having multiple of our days obscured by the results of that fire. James says that our tongues, as little as they are, can cause great damage. So husbands, do you use your tongue as a weapon, as an instrument, to belittle or manipulate your wife? Wives, do you use your tongue as a weapon to bash your husband behind his back? Those of you who aren't married, do you use your tongue to complain about where God has you in life, whether in the context of a relationship or just where God has you? Children, teens, is your tongue a weapon to strike down other people, to be unkind, to jeer? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. This is what people who don't, who have not been freed from sin, that's how they live. And Paul tells us that we must not do that, but he doesn't stop there. Paul says, instead of offering our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, we must instead present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So on the positive side, he, he, give, he splits it into two different things. He gives us kind of a reason why we should present ourselves to God, and then he kind of says what the goal of that is. He says, present yourselves, not just your members now, but all of you. Every part of me is to belong to God. Is to, it, it does belong to him objectively, and I need to act like that. I need to stand to him. I need to present myself to him. And he says that we are to do this for a specific reason, because we have been brought from death to life. Cue last week's sermon. <laughs> that was all about the new life that we have in Christ as Christians. And I encourage you, to, to, if you weren't able to, to be there, to go back and check that out. Uh, or just read the passage <laughs> from verses 3 through 11. It's all about the fact that Christians are those who have been freed from sin, but the purpose of dying to sin, or the result anyway, is that we would have new life. And Paul says that those who have been brought from death to life should naturally live like it. 
They should say no to their old lifestyle and offer themselves, present themselves to God. One of the most famous books, uh, famous verses in the book of Romans echoes this. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is because of the mercies of God. What is the mercy of God? The fact that we are united to Christ, that we're dead to sin and alive to him that we've been rescued from our sin. That's God's mercy. And in light of that, as one who has been brought from death to life, we must present ourselves to God, to give ourselves over to him entirely. Paul continues in verse 13. He says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And we can insert the word present here because it's continuing the exhortation. And present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So now this is the direct parallel to what he said earlier, right? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but instead, after that little parenthetical about offering yourself fully and entirely to God as one who's been brought from death to life, instead of that, of, of offering to sin, we offer our members to God as instruments for unrighteousness. So every part of us and all that we have, every part of our bodies is to be used for the Lord. This shows us that it's not simply enough to, to not do certain things. We also need to do certain things. It's not just about avoiding certain negative behaviors, but about cultivating positive ones. Paul says we need to take our members and not present them to sin. We need to fight sin's invasion as hard as we possibly can. But we must also offer those same members to God to be used for righteousness, for justice, for goodness, for holiness. Sin wants to use your members, your body, the part of you that interacts with the world. So think bigger than just like your hands, like your brain, your, your, even how you, just how you experience the world. Sin wants to use your members as instruments of death and destruction, God wants to use your members as instruments of life and restoration. Sin wants you to destroy life. God wants you to cultivate life. Sin wants to use your body as a sword to wreak havoc and unrighteousness. God wants to beat your sword into a plow that cultivates life and peace and flourishing. So who will you present your members to? Who will have your sword, as it were? We mentioned a few ways a few moments ago about how we can use our members as instruments for unrighteousness, but let's flip the script now. How can we use our members as instruments for righteousness? And again, this is a, a very small sampling. I'm just trying to show you practical ways that this can look, but it's far bigger than this. So don't be limited to these things. Your hands, instead of you know, sending a, a nasty email, it can send a text saying, I prayed for you today. How have you been doing with that difficult coworker or family situation? Your feet, maybe they can carry you to visit someone who's not able to get out much. Sounds basic, but you know what that is? It's presenting your member as an instrument for righteousness, showing kindness to someone. Your intellect can be used to solve problems at work or study the scriptures or defend the faith. Your imagination can be used to create works of art and beauty that reflect the creativity of our Creator and the wonders of the Gospel. 
And yes, the tongue as well. Rather than being used for destruction, it can be used for construction and restoration. Just like a fire has many different uses, certainly it's dangerous. But fire can also be used to provide warmth and security. Your tongue can be used for building up others, intentionally showing kindness to others rather than tearing them down. Can you imagine if our church was so fully characterized not merely by not doing certain things, not merely as what, by what it avoids or says no to, but by what it does? If we were known as being the loving ones, the truth-defending ones, the grace-extending ones, the selfless ones, the ones who go out of their way, out of their comfort zone, to care for the poor and needy, both physically and spiritually. If we want that kind of church, that's only going to happen corporately as each of us are doing that individually. Now keep these exhortations in light of the big picture. We've been brought from death to life, therefore we need to live like it. We don't live like this so that we can be brought from life, from death to life. No, not at all. But in light of what God has done for us, in light of the, the incredible possibilities that we have because of the new life we have in Christ, this is how we ought to live. In freedom, in joy, presenting ourselves to God, not to sin. So how do we fight sin and its desire to reign over us? Well, we said we need to know our enemy. We need to not offer our service to sin, but instead to God. And lastly, one more way, we fight sin by remembering our freedom. We see this in verse 14. Remember your freedom. Verse 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Why present my members to God instead of sin? The reason? Because sin will not have dominion over me. It will not be my master. This verse contains both a promise, sin will not have dominion over you, and it also has evidence or proof of that promise, because you are not under law, but under grace. So let's start by looking at that first part. Let's consider the promise of freedom. He, it, Paul says that sin will have no dominion over you. Now, uh, at, at first glance, it's, it's a little confusing because you've got verse 12 where Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your body. And then in verse 14, he says, sin will have no dominion over you. It's kind of confusing. It almost seems like he's saying, don't let this happen, and yet it's not going to. And I think what we have to remember is, is, is this big picture of the new life that Paul's been talking about. Yes, sin can never legally be your master again if you're a genuine Christian, but at the same time, it can still gain a foothold in your life. If you've been born again, sin can still cause damage. It can still find its way into the cracks of your life, but it cannot ever be genuinely in charge. So no matter how many times you slip, no matter how many times you choose to present your members to sin instead of to God, Sin will never be the legal master of the genuine Christian. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, put it this way, Sometimes, alas, sin not only enters us, but prevails over us. And we are forced in deep anguish to confess that we have fallen beneath its power. Still, a temporary defeat is not enough to put into effect 
a total subjugation. It's not your master anymore. Sin shall not have dominion over the believer, for though he fall, he shall rise again. That's what Proverbs says, right? The righteous man falls seven times, but he rises up again. Do you feel that struggle today? Do you feel like a particular sin is so deeply entrenched into you that you feel like you're just enslaved to it? Well, part of the key to winning the war against sin is recognizing that sin is not objectively, for the believer, your master. You don't have to listen to its harsh demands. It's like that banker thing we talked about last week. The banker comes to you, you've paid off the debt. It can, it can knock on your door, but it has no claim on you because your relationship to him is fundamentally changed. But the fact is, as wonderful as that sounds, sometimes we might find it hard to believe that sin won't have dominion over us. And we find that hard to believe because it kind of feels like it sometimes. It kind of feels like sin is winning. It kind of feels like it has dominion over me. So how do I know that sin won't have dominion? It's a valid question. And I'd like Paul to answer it for us. For sin will have no dominion over you since, after all, you are not under law, but under grace. This is really the proof of freedom. This is the evidence of the fact that sin won't have dominion over you anymore if you're a believer. He says, because you are not under law, but instead under grace. So what does it mean to be under law? Well, the law is God's law. It's not talking about the judicial system in the United States. Believe it or not, the United States has not been around that long. It's talking about God's law the stand and his ultimate standards of holiness and righteousness. Now, we'll be talking about the law quite a bit over the next few weeks because in chapter 7, Paul really zooms in on that. But for now, up to this point in Romans, we've already, there's already been a lot of things said about the law. In chapter 3, Paul says that the law reveals sin. In chapter 5, he says that it kind of magnifies sin in some ways. Back in chapter 3, it shows that we are accountable to God for sin. This is what the law does in its relationship to sin. In chapter 3 and in chapter 4, the law reveals the penalty of sin. It shows that, that those who sin are under God's wrath. It's a serious, sober thing. To be under the law is to see sin for what it is because the law reveals sin. To recognize the penalty of sin since the law shows that sin brings death. But to, be able to, but to be unable to do anything about it, for the law cannot provide righteousness. I could sum it up maybe this way. To be under the law is to desperately need righteousness, but to be utterly unable to achieve it. That's not a good place to be. Paul says, you are not under law, but under grace. Grace achieves what the law cannot. In chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says, he's already said by this point in the, in the text, he says, we are justified. Well, pause. What does justified mean? Declared righteous. Ah, the law shows me my unrighteousness. The law can't get me righteous. So to be justified is to be declared righteous, to receive righteousness that's not my own. Well, how does that happen if it's not by the law? Paul says, consistently with chapter 6, we are justified by his grace. And where do we see this grace? Paul goes on in chapter 3, verse 24, to say this grace 
is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. It is the sacrificial, atoning death of Jesus Christ that showcases the amazing grace of God. That's what we are under. The saying goes that all roads lead to Rome, but I think in Romans, all roads lead to the cross. Because the cross displays, spotlights, how amazing God's favor is to sinners who do not deserve it. Where sin abounds, sin has abound, or grace has abounded all the more through Jesus. So to be under the law, excuse me, to be under grace means that the law cannot condemn you for your sin because Jesus was already condemned in your place. To be under grace means that your unrighteousness has been taken by Jesus on the cross and cannot be held against you. To be under grace means that your old self has died with Christ and you are raised to newness of life in his resurrection. You and I don't deserve any of this. That's what makes it grace. Believers are the recipients of free and rich and undeserved riches in Christ. We are under grace. And if you are under this freeing, life-giving grace, rest assured, Paul's logic goes, sin will not have dominion over you. Believe that. Rehearse the gospel over and over and over so that you know deeply how safe your position in Christ is, how free you are from sin's tyranny, how real your new life is, and thus how ridiculous it is to indulge in sin. Sin will not have dominion over you. How do I know? Because you're not under law, but under grace. So how can you fight sin this week? We need to know our enemy. Know your enemy, both its goal, but also that it's fallible. Yes, it wants to reign over me. Yes, it wants to make me obey its passions, but I don't have to give in. It's a battle that can be won by God's grace. We need to offer our service, not to sin, but to God. That's very practical. I encourage you to think this week, what does that look like for me? What ways do I tend to offer myself, as, an, as um, offer my members to sin? And what way do I tend to uh, not offer myself to God? And then remember your freedom. This is part of fighting sin. It's not some like interesting thing that just we just talk about. No, remembering that you are free in Christ is essential to fighting the sin and defeating sin in your life. In the last book of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, I love Lord of the Rings, so here I go, The Return of the King, there's, there's a fascinating chapter at the end of this book that's not in the movie, so if, you haven't, if you've only seen the movies, you're, you're missing out here. But by this point in the story, I'll explain it to you if you're not familiar with it, so I'll, I'll, I'll get The main villain by this point has been destroyed. The shadow has lifted, a new king has been crowned, and peace has finally come after many hundreds of pages, lots of trees. The heroes arrive back to their home. They're, they've done their duty, they've, woo, we won. They get back home, and it's this weird chapter in the books, because they come home, and they find out that their home's been enslaved. And they find out that the one who is currently reigning is none other than Saruman. 
and this Saruman is an evil villain, but he's not the, he's not the main bad guy. He's, he's like the secondary villain, okay? And he's had his share of, you know, the grotesque armies and the wicked plans and the evil magic, all that kind of stuff that goes along with a fantasy novel. But the bizarre part of this scene, I'm going somewhere with this. The bizarre part of this scene is that Saruman has already been deposed. By this time in the story, his armies have been scattered, he's been ejected from his tower, and his staff, the symbol of his power, it's been shattered. He has no power nor any right to rule. And yet here he is, weirdly, at the end of the book, back. And despite being deposed, he's in control. I hope you can see the parallels here. And so we get to the end here. And the heroes confront Saruman, and they say we should kill him. And he has this really sinister reply. He says, do not think, this is what the bad guy says back to the good guys, do not think that when I lost all my goods, I lost all my power. Whoever strikes me shall be accursed, and if my blood stains the shire, it shall wither and never again be healed. Ooh, that's quite the threat. <laughs> and Tolkien writes, in light of this dastardly threat, that the hobbits, the heroes, they recoiled. But now listen to this. Frodo said, do not believe him. He has lost all power, save his voice that can still daunt you and deceive you if you let it. When sin threatens you, do not believe him. When it tells you that you are his, remember that sin has lost all power. He may try to daunt you. He, must, he may try to deceive you. But you must not let him. Don't let a deposed ruler control your life. Because after all, sin does not, it will not, and it cannot have dominion over you. Let's pray. Lord, we could never free ourselves from sin's grasp. But in Christ, we have incomprehensible freedom. Mind-blowing freedom. We thank you for that and ask that you'd help us to live in light of that this week. In Jesus' name.